Well, good morning, everyone. Today we are uh, looking at both marriage and singleness from a biblical perspective. But we realize that there will be some of you uh, among us that don't share our assumption that the Bible is God's divine authoritative revelation. Uh, you may appreciate the Bible, but you may also think when the Bible speaks on the subjects of sex and marriage, it's restrictive and it's repressive. Now, we get that. I get that. I used to believe that. But I hope this morning that I can help you uh, along the way see actually how functionally practical and insightful the Bible is in these areas, even though the Bible certainly is at odds with our current contemporary culture. And I'm not going to try to soften that. I'm not going to try to water uh, that down. What I want to do, though, is I want to back up and ask this question, well, why are we beginning in this series on these cultural hot potatoes with the subject of marriage and singleness? Why, why start that way? Well, it really goes back to what I said uh, last week when I talked uh, about having a certain perspective and keeping the gospel before us. You see, the New Testament tells us that we as followers of Jesus Christ are not in Jerusalem. We are, in fact, exiles. That means we're not the dominant culture as Christians. We're the minority culture. And what we believe will always, always put us at odds with our culture. And we should, frankly, expect that. But because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection... We know that as a church, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to give ourselves to seeking the flourishing of the culture around us. Starting with our families, our friends, our workplaces, uh, the communities that we live in. So we are outward-oriented, not inward-oriented, and that parenthetically is why our jobs matter so very much to God. Because we have this fundamental outward orientation, seeking the flourishing of our culture. But that starts with a clear and winsome, exilic perspective. We're exiles, exilic perspective on marriage and singleness because they are so essential, they are so foundational to our lives as Christ followers. As a matter of fact, we can't live a robust, gospel-centered life unless we are clear on these two areas. And frankly, they're equally important for the culture, regardless of whatever culture we live in. So what I want to do is I want to start with marriage. And I want to say to those of you that are single, I'm going to be a little long on marriage, a little short on singleness, because while I'm talking about marriage, I, I want to talk to you singles about not over-desiring or under-desiring marriage. Because that happens to create all sorts of downstream issues. So marriage, what is marriage? Well, according to the Bible, marriage is a lifelong relationship, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. It's so important in the Bible that as early as Genesis chapter 2, we have a foundational, essential statement on the subject of marriage. Let's look at it. Genesis 2, 24 which reads, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become 
one flesh. Now, when we come to the Gospels, Jesus affirms this statement and actually deepens it. Look what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, now notice what Jesus says relative to who uttered the words of Genesis 2.24. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. No one separate. And as we travel in the Bible, we learn that God designed this lifelong union between complementary sexes uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, for example, to create a stable, enduring community for the parenting of children. Uh, uh, number two, uh, to refine our character. Uh, God has not given us marriage to make us happy, ultimately, but to make us holy. If you get that, it changes things. And to fulfill, uh, third reason is to fulfill our uh, needs, the needs God has hardwired us with for relationship. But then most importantly, and this is according to the New Testament, God has given us marriage to be a living picture of the love relationship that exists between Jesus Christ and the church. But you've seen the statistics. The divorce rate is almost 50% in our culture today. Double what it was in 1960. In 1960, 72% of all American adults were married. Today, it's 50%. And here's the deeper problem underneath these statistics. What they point to is a growing pessimism, even disdain for traditional marriage, especially among younger adults. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on marriage, there's a list of some books that we recommend in that insert. Uh, Keller's book is excellent, so there's a, a number of great books on marriage. One of the interesting things about Keller's book is he writes and preaches in a context where 70% of his church is single. So whether you're married or single, I want to recommend that book. I recommend all the books that we've mentioned. But look what he says in this quote, talking about the younger uh, younger adults. Young adults believe that their chances of having a good marriage are not great, and even if marriage is stable, there is, in their view, the horrifying prospect that it will become sexually boring. So, as Chris Rock has asked, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Right? You hear that today. Many young adults believe that these are indeed the two main options, and that is why many aim for something in the middle between marriage and mere sexual encounters, and it's called cohabitation. And so as a result, what we know is that cohabitation is skyrocketing in our culture. And now today, 50% of all people that get married have lived together beforehand. Now, behind these statistics and behind this um, uh, um, growing pessimism for, for marriage are two misguided perceptions that drive it. Perception number one is this. Most marriages are unhappy. 
And the thinking goes like this. You know, 50% of the marriages end in divorce, then at least 50% of those people that are married are not happy. And then you add personal experience. Uh, maybe it's your parents that were divorced or a family member, a, a sibling or a friend. And um, it's easy to conclude today that most marriages are, are not happy. There's a second perception, and this perception is that living together, cohabitating, improves your chances for a successful marriage. Now, the problem is both those perceptions are wrong, even statistically. You see, there's a large body of research that tells us 61, 62% <clears throat> Of all, married couples tell us their happiness is very high, extremely high. And surprisingly, in the last 10, 15 years or, or so, saying that loosely, uh, that percentage hasn't really dropped, hasn't really changed. More importantly, research tells us that two-thirds of all unhappily married couples will become happy within five years if they stay married and don't divorce. In the area of cohabitation, the research uh, tells us uh, that, that couples that live together before they uh, get married are more likely to divorce than couples that don't. And then on this uh, subject of divorce, the 50% the divorce uh, uh, statistic, what I want you to know is the greatest percentage of divorces occur among those who get married before they're 18, who drop out of school, and who have a baby before they get married. And if you happen to, to be a, a, a person that's reasonably well-educated, you come from an intact family, and you are religious, and you marry after the age of uh, 25 without having a baby first, statistically, your chances of divorce are really low. Now read some of these books. The statistics are, are there. So it raises the question if um, the statistics point out these two perceptions are wrong, where then does in fact this per pessimism, this disdain for traditional marriage afoot in America today, where does it come from? Let me mention three sources. Number one, it comes from a shift in our thinking relative to the purpose of marriage. And for you history buffs, actually this shift has its roots in the 18th, 19th century enlightenment. And what is this shift? Well, the shift is that the Judeo-Christian ideal of marriage as a permanent covenant for the sake of mutual love, well-being, and protection is giving way, losing ground to the contemporary notion that marriage is a temporary relational sexual contract designed for the gratification of the two individual parties. 
Uh, so what people are talking about today is we have moved from an us notion of marriage to a me notion. And instead of viewing marriage as an opportunity to fulfill my responsibilities to God, uh, to, to my spouse, and to society, we now view marriage as an opportunity for me to fulfill my own desires. Now, this isn't just me. Look at this New York Times columnist. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for partnership. Now, partnership isn't all wrong, obviously, but what they want are partners who will make their own lives more interesting, who will help them attain their values, their goals, their dreams. So what's going on, and sometimes this is subtle, sometimes it's more overt, is in our culture, marriage used to be viewed dominantly as a public institution for the common good. But today, increasingly, it's viewed as a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individual. And when it stops satisfying, it's over. There's a second source for this pessimism. And that is, and this is paradoxical, it's in many ways ironic in our culture today, but there is an increasing unrealistic expectation for marriage afoot. Now why is that? Well, we have to understand the culture we live in. We live in a culture that places a high, 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 high value on individual freedom, autonomy, and personal fulfillment. High values on those. And so, because that's the air we breathe, when people are looking for a spouse, someone to marry, they're thinking about their own needs. And their, look, their, their view is dominated by how can I get someone who, fulfill, who will fulfill my financial wants, my relational wants, my emotional wants, my sexual wants. And really what's underneath that is a self-centeredness. And that self-centeredness, and often this is unintentional, it's almost even unconscious, creates an unrealistic expectation that leads to pessimism. This is what I need, I'll never find that person. That person doesn't exist. I'll never find somebody that's good enough for me. So increasingly what's going on in the United States is we put off marriage. Or we overlook really great people uh, because we believe we are entitled to perfection. There's a third source uh, for this pessimism in, in our culture. And that is just plain fear. Uh, the fear of not being satisfied. The fear that marriage is going to be too hard too demanding, too exacting, take too much work. Uh, the fear of not being good enough. The fear of making a mistake. Now, if you know my story, you know that I have been married twice. I like to say I have had the privilege of being married 
twice to two marvelous uh, women at two different times, by the way. <laughs> and I'll talk a little more about that in, in, in just a, a few minutes. But one of the dumbest things I ever did was the first time around, the day after I asked my first wife, Carol, to marry me, and she said yes, I told her that I had made a mistake. Now, do you hear me? Day one, Carol, will you marry me? Oh, yeah, Rob, I'd love to marry you. Great, great. Next day, Carol, guess what? I made a mistake. Now, you talk about, um, well, it was bad. Now, now, why? Because I was obsessing on finding the right person. And underneath that, this gets at the shark I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Underneath that was a fear of not being satisfied. And I was putting all this weight on this. Now, thankfully, Carol, my first wife, and we were married for 27 years, was really, really patient. But on that day, she realized that she was going to be marrying a project. <laughs> and that was true. Uh, so we've got this thing going on. The, the, in our culture, the purpose of marriage has really shifted. Uh, reflecting the meism in our culture. And, and along the way, we have placed unrealistic, super high expectations on marriage, and then we also have this fear. So what does the Bible say speaking into that? I think it says two things that we all, we all need to understand. Number one, you will never, ever find the right person. And if you do, he or she won't stay right. Now some of you are thinking, what in the world is he saying? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just a few of us, not just husbands, not just wives, all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things, above all things and beyond cure. That's encouraging, isn't it? Who can understand it? You see, the point of Romans 3.23 and uh, Jeremiah 17.9 is that we are all sinful, fallen people and our hearts are sinful, fallen hearts and we have behavior problems because we have heart problems and our hearts are deceitful. So that means each of us, when we come into a relationship, bring strengths and we bring weaknesses. We have good days and we have bad days. And some of those bad days become bad months and they become bad years. It's just fascinating. Uh, so uh, look at these words from an ethics professor at Duke. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always married the wrong person. Now, I know some of you are horrified. I apologize, okay? <laughs> we never know whom we marry. We just think we do, and this is his point. Or even if we first marry the right person, we just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, we are not the same person after we entered in it. Now, do you get that? The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you 
yourself have married. So it's been said, we don't marry one person, we marry 10 people. And what I mean by that is what we discover is one week she's like this, the next week she's like that. In his 30s, he was like this. In his 50s, he's like this. We're always changing. <laughs> and sometimes the change is really good. Sometimes the change is not so good. Now, do you see what this means? Oh, what this means for our marriages it means uh, that because we live in a sinful fallen world and we're sinful fallen people, this search for a perfect soulmate or perfect spouse is an impossibility. And while marriage on the one hand is wonderful, God created it, marriage on the other hand is always, always difficult. We're sinful fallen people. Let me go on and make a, a second point that I think speaks into this um, atmosphere of pessimism relative to marriage. And that is we, we're way down the road if we understand the, uh, the Bible teaches that love is not primarily a romantic feeling, but continually giving and serving. Now let me talk about my current marriage. Nine years ago, following the death of our two spouses, Rhonda and I began to see each other. And I will never forget the mo first movie we went to together. We weren't even dating at this point. Uh, we weren't even thinking uh, about dating. We just happened to be with uh, some people from the church, actually. Two other couples, one an elder and his wife and another uh, two staff members. And we decided to go to this movie together. And during the movie, the, the female love interest is killed and dies kind of a, a slow death. And Rhonda, sensitive to what I had just gone through in the death as a result of cancer of my, my first wife, leaned over, she was sitting on my left, she put her hand on her, my left arm, and she said, Rob, I'm so sorry, you have to watch this. Now, I had been married for 27 years previously. A great marriage. But now, I was single. I was a single parent with four kids. And when Rhonda put her arm her hand on my arm, it was like I was 17. <laughs> it was crazy. It was like this electrical shock that went through me. What do we call that? We call that romantic feelings. Perfectly normal, wonderful. A year goes by, the end of the year, uh, uh, give or take a, a, a little bit of time, Rhonda and I get married. And, and we wake up, and we are in this step family, this blended family. I have four kids. Rhonda has three. I think that's seven. It's a couple too many. We can't figure that out. <laughs> but you know what we discovered? 
We discovered as hard as marriage is, remarriage into a blended family with all the kids we have is way harder. Way harder. And because of that, the experts in, in blended families uh, tell us that the honeymoon in a, in a remarriage with a blended family comes at the end of seven years. You got to get through seven years to get there. Because of all the competing allegiances and all the adjustments that take place. And I want you to know, Rhonda and I totally agree with that. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because the two of us, as much as we love Jesus Christ, probably would have never, ever made it the second time around if we based our relationship merely on romantic feelings. And thankfully, the Bible tells us there is so much more to love than that. So grab your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at two verses, verse 25, put them on the screen. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Underline that verse, circle that verse. Then Paul says the same thing in verse 28. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their, own, their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, so Paul in the space of just a couple verses, has said twice to the husbands, husbands, love your wives. And in verse 28, he uses a word that stresses obligation, translated in English, ought. Husbands ought to love their wives. Now, because he's commanding love here a couple of times, and because he's telling us love is an obligation, we can conclude that love, biblically speaking, uh, certainly in the context of marriage, we know it's beyond that, is not primarily a feeling, it's primarily actions. That's precisely what we see in verse 25. Look back at verse 25 where Paul tells us that he, after he's given the command to love, he describes it as the act of giving. Husbands are to give themselves up, just as Christ gave himself up for the church. Now, please, do not misunderstand. Paul is not saying it doesn't matter who you marry. <laughs> Paul is not saying romantic feelings are wrong. His point is that whoever you marry, your feelings are going to come and go. Martin Luther said, feelings come, feelings go. Feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Paul is saying your feelings are going to come and go. But what sustains marriage, men, are your actions of love, your, your patience, your kind words, your gentleness, your willingness to turn the other cheek, your willingness to forgive, the action of forgiving, your, your sensitivity, your, your commitment. Uh, the fact that you buy flowers every day. I don't know what it is. So what happens when the love is gone? When the feelings die? When the feelings dry up? What does Paul say? This is where the Bible is so very practical. Paul's point is you continue to do the actions of love in those moments despite your feelings. And just as Christ gave himself up for you, you give up 
yourself for your wife. And by the way, Christ gave himself up for you after his honest evaluation of your merit or lack of. Fascinating, profound passage. Now, if you back up just a couple of verses, Paul, right before verse 25, says controversially that wives are to submit to their husbands. And then immediately after saying that, he begins, husbands love your wives. Husbands love your wives. Give yourself as Christ gave himself. And this appeal to the husbands we need to understand, if language means anything, is a much stronger appeal to abandon self-interest than submission is for the wife. God anticipates, it's as if God anticipates how counterintuitive, how difficult this will be for us as men. Now, yes, each of these commands uh, for the wife and for the husband are different, uh, just as different as the husbands and wives are from each other. But the point is the same here in Ephesians chapter 5. We are each called to sacrifice for the other in extraordinary ways. Just as Christ gave himself up. Just as Christ submitted to the Father. Therefore, the essence of love isn't ultimately a feeling. It's a sacrificial commitment. It's the giving of yourself. It's the laying down of your life. It's the uh, denying yourself, dying to yourself. And so, uh, let me just say this to, to you men, godly husbands are way ahead in marriage, living in light of what Jesus Christ has done and, and seeing their own selfishness as a much bigger deal than their wife's. And they give themselves to their wife regardless of how she responds. Just as Christ gave himself to us regardless of where we were. And when both the husband and the wife do that, man, you are able to get past a whole lot of woundedness and begin to, to craft a marriage that will really rock, really be beautiful. And here at Wheaton Bible Church, uh, by the way, if you want to make progress on your marriage, regardless of where your marriage is, that's why we have this Monday night ministry called Re-Engage. And as Phil said, Rhonda and I will be speaking at it tomorrow night, and we'd love to have you come back here tomorrow night for our Re-Engage marriage ministry. <coughs> now let's talk about singleness. And church, I want you to hear me in this where one of the problems with our culture has been that we minimize marriage. One of the bigger problems with the church, our church, churches like ours in North America, is that we minimize singleness. And singleness is becoming increasingly a new norm in our culture, like it or not. Younger singles, middle-aged singles, older uh, senior adult singles. 
So what this means is a Wheaton Bible Church cannot, cannot, cannot be merely a church that has a singles ministry. We have to be a church for singles. And frankly, for too long, we've been a church where it's been hard for singles. I had a guy come up to me after the last service and say just that. And why do I say this? I say this because the Bible is both pro-marriage and pro-single. Pro-marriage and yet pro-single. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7, I wish that you were all just as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I happen to be. Now like Jesus, the apostle Paul was single. He, he's telling us that here. So singleness cannot mean that we are somehow less than fully formed because we're single and not married. Jesus, who was perfect, was single, always single. Paul, the eminent theologian, church planter, uh, evangelist of the early church, was single. And in verse 7, Paul describes singleness as a gift. A lot of confusion about that. Uh, what, well, it can be uh, temporary, but it could also be permanent. It, it just depends. For Paul, it was permanent. But please, 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 Paul is not talking when he talks about singleness as a gift, as a complete lack of interest in marriage. <coughs> he, he's not talking about a lack of struggle with romantic feelings or, or, or wondering if, if I should be married. The word gift always in Paul's letters refers to an ability that God gives someone to build up others, not oneself. So this notion that somehow this gift of singleness is some sort of stress-free state is crazy. Paul is talking about, when he talks about a gift here, he's talking about the unshackled ability to lay down your life for the kingdom. The freedom, and if you go down to verse 32, that paragraph beginning there, that's exactly what he describes. Now, what I want you to know is that Christianity was the first religion, the first religion that held up singlehood as a very viable, legit way of life. You see, nearly all ancient cultures made marriage and the having uh, children an almost absolute value. And Christianity comes along and Jesus and Paul are single. So why is Christianity so different? Because it teaches, number one, our, our identity. Uh, our, our significance, our, our worth is never a function of our circumstances. It's always a function of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That we are God's child through the cross of Jesus Christ when we come to Jesus by faith. And secondly, our hope isn't horizontal. Our hope is vertical. Our hope is in the coming future kingdom and return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, do you see what that means? 
What that means is if we understand our identity and we understand our hope, we de-idolize marriage. We dethrone it. Marriage is not a savior. Uh, Look at how Paige Brown puts it. I like this quote. Let's get this up. Let's face it. Singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs. But I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date because God is so good to me. Uh, So our significance, our worth, our uh, our identity, our hope is all tethered to what Jesus Christ has done. And living as a contented single in the first century world, the world of Jesus and the world of Paul, as a single was one of the most radical, radical things a person could do. It was a tangible statement that my security and my hope isn't in my children. It's not in my circumstances, it's in my Savior. So we don't, on the one hand, over-desire marriage, and on the other, under-desire marriage. If we over-desire marriage, what happens is, uh, we sort of sentence ourselves to placing our lives on hold. We, we always feel inadequate. We always feel like we're kind of half-baked, half-cooked. And, and then it may result in some terrible decisions we make out of desperation. If we over-idolize, or if we over-desire marriage, if we idolize it. But on the other hand, if we under-desire marriage, if we create a subtle disdain for marriage then we fail to appreciate the role of marriage in the Bible. And we can reinforce self-centeredness and narcissism and, and frankly open the door for all sorts of sexual immorality, alienation and superficiality. And the point, and this goes back to last week, we are not, we are not in Jerusalem, we are exiles. And we live differently. So whether you're married and you wish you were single, whether you're single and wish you were married, or or you're you're someplace in in between, what I want you to understand is what the Bible is calling us to do is impossible. It's just impossible. Uh, Love is submit as Christ gave himself, as Christ submitted. And so the only way forward and and to avoid the hopelessness And the self-centeredness that eats at all of us like a cancer is by turning to the ultimate lover of your soul, Jesus Christ. And seeing Jesus, who loved you so much that on the cross he took upon himself what you deserved because of your sins against God and tasted the lostness of hell to give you the heaven of God's love. Jesus gave himself up. 
And when we take our eyes off our circumstances, off our spouse, off our uh, singleness, off our whatever, and we fix our eyes on Jesus and see himself giving himself up for me, then I can give myself up for others. I can die to self. So let's not make marriage, let's not make singleness an idol. Let's not make marriage, let's not make singleness, let's not make our jobs, let's not make our families, let's not make our, our, our money our, our Savior. Jesus alone is our Savior. And He alone will never disappoint you. He alone will never forsake you. He alone will never, ever let you go. So cling to Jesus and let Him change you and produce the peace and the, the contentment and the security that comes from the inside out. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to commit these uh, dear people to you and pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us and to reveal yourself to us that we might, God, hear from you, and in hearing from you, we might change. Would you bless us? Draw us to yourself, God. Open our eyes that we would see more of the wonder of Jesus, who, who gave up everything in complete humility to rescue us from our pride. Amen.